Hello, and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, and I am so thrilled that this badass group of ladies is going to take us through the last Act 5 of King John. Farce, dark comedy, the verdict is still um, up in the air. Um, so we ended with Arthur is definitively dead, um, which is sad because he was a very sweet young lad. And then we have the nobles reacting to his death. And then we have uh, the nobles hating on Hubert, poor Hubert, who's totally innocent. Um, and then we have this transformation of, of Philip Richard <laughs> um, and his amazing imagery that creeps in. And now we go back to the throne room, back to King John, who at this point still believes that Arthur is alive and that there's a chance to bring his nobles back. And, um, and all of a sudden, Cardinal Pandolf, whom we haven't seen since Act 3, reappears and appears to be uh, crowning him for a second time. Or maybe it's third time, because at the start of Act 4, he also said he had just been recrowned. So this is perhaps King John's third coronation? I don't know. Let's find out what happens in this, in this first scene of Act 5. Thus have I yielded up into your hand the circle of my glory. Take again from this my hand, as holding of the Pope, your sovereign greatness and authority. Now, keep your holy word. Go meet the French, and from his holiness use all your power to stop their marches, for we are inflamed. Our discontented counties do revolt. Our people quarrel with obedience, swearing allegiance and the soul of love to stranger blood to foreign royalty. This inundation of mistempered humor rests by you only to be qualified. Then pause not for the present time so sick that present medicine must be ministered to overthrow incurable ensues. I have no idea what that last bit meant. To overthrow incurable ensues. Mm. Yeah, what does ensues mean here? Is it just like one of those weird Shakespeareisms where like it doesn't actually mean, any mean anything, but he means to suggest like the things that we can't change that are definitely going to happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think like incurable the... here must be like the proper noun <laughs> in I this guess. kind of strange yeah. thing. And like like and... in this weird metaphor that he's doing about like time being sick, the things that are like the future is also sick, like the ensues, like the things that are going to happen are like just as sick as present time is now. Yeah, I think that's that's got to be, yeah switch the order of the words around it's yeah. like or else <laughs> this this overthrow will be incurable and all of that will ensue but he just there we go delete <laughs> half the words and puts them in a weird order it's just to, to fit the rhythm <laughs> cool thank you i was very confused with that and i also realized that all my text notes about meaning didn't actually cover anything in those last three lines so Thank you. But it, I mean, it's and it's also you've got um, medicine and incurable, which are opposites, and then present and ensues. Yeah, present is what's happening now, and ensues is what happens later. So you've got a couple antitheses there. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know that word. My my um, I'm gonna get out my little my little red 
depends because bread is antithesis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Medicine and incurable ensues. <laughs> it was my breath that blew this tempest up upon your, su- uh, your stubborn usage of the Pope. But since you are a gentle convertite, is that right? Convertite? And that works with my the tongue- rhythm. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my tongue shall hush against this storm of war and make fair weather in your blustering land. On this ascension day, remember well upon your oath of service to the Pope. Go I to make the French lay down their arms. Is this ascension day? Did not the prophet say that before ascension day at noon, my crown, I should give off? Even so I have. I did suppose it should be on constraint, but heaven be thanked, it is but voluntary. All Kent hath yielded, nothing there holds out but Dover Castle. London hath received, like a kind host, the Dauphin and his powers. Your nobles will not hear you, but are gone to offer service to your enemy, and wild amazement hurries up and down the little number of your doubtful friends. Would not my lords return to me again after they heard young Arthur was alive? They found him dead and cast into the streets, an empty casket where the jewel of life by some damned hand was robbed and ta'en away. That villain Hubert told me he did live. So on my soul he did, for aught he knew. But wherefore do you droop? Why look you sad? Be great in act as you have been in thought. Let not the world see fear and sad distrust govern the motion of a kingly eye. Be stirring as the time. Be fire with fire. Threaten the threatener and outface the brow of bragging horror, so shall inferior eyes that borrow their behaviors from the great grow great by your example and put on the dauntless spirit of resolution. Away and glister like the god of war when he intended to become the field, show boldness and aspiring confidence. What, shall they seek the lion in his den and fright him there and make him tremble there? Oh, let it not be said, forage and run to meet displeasure farther from the doors and grapple with him ere he come so nigh. The legate of the Pope hath been with me, and I have made a happy peace with him, and he hath promised to dismiss the powers led by the Dauphin. Oh, inglorious league, shall we upon the footing of our land send fair play orders and make compromise? Insinuation, parley, and base truce to arms invasive? Shall a beardless boy... A cockered silken wanton brave our fields and flesh his spirit in a warlike soil, mocking the air with colors idly spread and find no check? Let us, my liege, to arms. Perchance the cardinal cannot make your peace, or if he do, let it at least be said they saw we had a purpose of defense. Have thou the ordering of this present time. Away then with good courage, yet I know our party may well meet a prouder foe. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Whoa. So much has happened. Uh, yeah. I wanted to point out a fun little detail that nothing holds out in Kent but Dover Castle. Dover Castle was where Eleanor lived for many, many, many years. So I love that, mm. that like Dover Castle, which sort of represented Eleanor to a certain extent, was still standing. Um, yes. and was still and and it's and it's right on the cliffs of dover too it's like really mm. quite beautiful um 
and look looks out over the ocean. It's just like wow. Yeah. So I, I I that that to me is such a strong image that like Dover Castle is is holding out even though the rest of the county has has gone over to the French, which is this is kind of an extraordinary political situation, right? That the that these English sort of towns would be welcoming this French prince presumably to come and take over there it's like guys this ain't the norman conquest like what's going on it's very odd what 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 are your thoughts i mean yeah it, it's extraordinary certainly it, it definitely feels like it's funny it's like what happens in this act and especially in this scene it feels like it end it it's already over like it's it's over you know what i mean like now that this has happened there's so little that can possibly be done. And to speak to John in this scene also feels a little bit like trying to like push, it feels like Sisyphean almost. It feels like he's like, well, and, and like, just speaking for myself, it feels like the bastard is like, but, but, but there has to be some, but hey, I mean, I don't know, yeah. It It's so funny because yeah. it, it it does it feels like the bastard is in the end of a different history play you know and it's so interesting because he was such a different character at the beginning but like it, it feels like in any other play with with a kingly king uh it, he wouldn't have to rile him up to go to war like there would be like a, a scene of the king being like all right we're gonna do this and then there would be the battle and that would be the play but instead we get uh, sensibly the the fool coming in and being like yo like what are you doing <laughs> come on like yeah. and you know what shall they seek the lion in his den you know just like riling him you know as we've said the lion metaphors and the comparisons to his brother are so palpable it's just such a Absolutely. weird it's such a weird beginning to a conclusion yeah yeah it's like you're trying to I... get the king to fight for himself i guess right I, I think I think it's interesting this play is about King John slowly and step by step losing all of his power and at the start you see him make this like joint decision to or just decision to bring Philip and the, the bastard into his life um and and like gain something right and then from that moment on he kind of slowly starts to slip but uh the bastard somehow like becomes his right hand like man and, and becomes his right arm almost. And at this point he's more passionate about winning than John is. And it's, mm. it's like, he is this lifeline that's kind of keeping John even standing at this point. And John just weakens more and more as this act goes on to the point where he's nothing. And the bastard is like holding him as he dies, essentially, you know, it's just like crazy how it all slips from him. It, that kind of reminds me the relationship between uh, our 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 Scottish couple, the 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 Mackers couple. That there is sort of a Macbeth has to be brought up to this level, and Lady Macbeth like has to c come down and kind of pull him up, and then the murder happens, and they kind of switch trajectories, and she's sort of on this downward trajectory for the rest of the play after the murder, and he sort of gets energized by the chaos. Um, and it seems to me that there's a similar thing that happens with, with King John and the bastard, that there is like, the bastard starts here and King John starts sort of here. And then I don't know exactly what the point is, 
but somehow it's like King John just keeps kind of giving up at this point. It's just like, oh, just do this. I mean, we talked a little bit about it yesterday, but the Dudley Dursley effect of like, I don't want to have to do anything for the things that I want. Boo hoo. Um, and then, and that there is a, there is an energy, there is a fire behind uh, Philip Richard, <laughs> Richard Philip. I love that, that we don't really have a name for him. That's also like something that's a bit fascinating because in, and I, I, yeah. I forgot to mention in the, in the previous act, there's this wonderful moment where they call you Falconbridge. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, you got your old name back. And then it's renowned Falconbridge. And then in this, it's going to be Sir Philip and then Sir Richard. And it's like, he doesn't have a name. We can't pinpoint him with anything, but the bastard, which is how his name is in the, um, in the script you know I think, <laughs> Which is like, yeah. I think it's in, that's such an interesting thing because like like you said he is named you know in the script as the bastard which to me is just more of a reminder that this is a story about like paternity <laughs> and like he he can only be known to us in terms of like his relationship to the crown mm. but like to everyone else he's always going to be known by his like other name because they want to distance themselves from his like his uh, true identity as much as possible. Yeah. But like from the beginning, we are reminded in the text that he is like a relative, he is John's relative, you know, he's his half brother, I guess, half, half no. cousin. Half cousin. <laughs> calls him cousin. He calls yes, him cousin. cousin. See, but it's interesting because um, Salisbury is also a bastard. Yeah. And yet, it's but not yet, mentioned. Yeah, it's not mentioned, and he's titled, and he married uh, the daughter of Lord Salisbury, so that inherited through that, through his marriage, and yet he is the half-brother. His father was Henry II, Eleanor's husband. So, you know, he's ha John's half-brother, so he's Lord Falconbridge, I mean, he's uh, Salisbury and has this noble bearing and has all this power. And then the bastard in contrast has none of that. And yet they're, they're you know, paternity wise, there's not that much difference. <laughs> I was just gonna say that there's, there's a lot of really interesting lineage like, um... Henry Bolingbroke, who <clears throat> in, is the king in Henry IV, his father legitimized all of his illegitimate offspring by marrying his longtime mistress after his yes. wife died. You know, so there, right. and so then a whole bunch of claims come through her, but you know, technically in these in these rules, they the children of this particular mother, none of them were conceived within wedlock. But right. it kind of didn't matter so much, and this is where there's 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 like a class of noblemen um, during Shakespeare's time, and um, probably during the time of King John, the illegitimate sons and daughters of you know the king and the the higher upper echelon, and they they were always given these interesting last names like Fitzroy. Um, the, the name Fitzroy usually means um, the bastard of the king, the illegitimate offspring of um, So that's where there's like a lot of a, a lot of a lot of that lineage is sort of interwoven into the aristocracy. 
But there's, it's interesting when the questions of legitimacy pop up, as we saw, when it, it really has to do with who gets the land, um, right. which is exactly what happens with the other, I think, most prominent bastard in Shakespeare, um, Edmund in King Lear. And, you know, one of his first lines is, well, then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. I mean, it's always about land. It's all, always about, like, who gets the property and who passes the property to whose kids. Um, and there is, again, I think I've, I've talked about this in, in, in this session in, in general, but there is such an obsession with, um, you know, for example, Henry IV in, in Richard II saying, you know, like, why was I born if I don't become the Duke of Lancaster? It's like this, that, that your occupation is sort of the same as your title which is kind of crazy to me. I don't think we have that sort of idea about identity now, but maybe we do. Maybe people define themselves by what they do, but um, no, what are your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I also think that, I, I don't know. I mean, I think someone could write a very compelling paper about the correlation between how freely someone gets to speak and how much of a bastard they are <laughs> um, <laughs> because uh I also like Thersites comes to mind in Troilus and Cressida, who is a bastard, and he's the one that gets to say everything that no one would dare say to these higher ups. And it kind of reminds me the same way. He's he's raging on, let's battle, let's do it. Look, they're cabber clapping them now and all this stuff. And and it's the same thing as the bastard who just more than anything just wants to get out there and prove himself yeah. <laughs> and um, fight for, you know, his adopted family here. So I, I think, I mean, I don't know much about Edmund, so I might just be totally lying, but I feel like having no allegiance in a way allows you to have way more say. Absolutely. And I think we've, we've discussed quite a bit about the, the sort of who can speak truth to power, right? And, and the, the interesting position that that puts people in. And I think this is an amazing speech that you just did, Olivia, the, the sort of like pep talk speech um to be saying that to a king is like kind of extraordinary yeah. yeah it feels like it i i keep getting the on in respect of why the bastard is still only titled as the bastard going forward also like it feels rather like and we've all talked about this before so he he's clearly new to this class of people in this community he knows about he thinks he knows what it means to be a king certainly you know but now that he is here in this space i feel like he's to use a term from act four consistently awed by the way this stuff really works so i feel mm. like he is something of a cipher and i think it makes not totally but like it it works functionally for this play that he remains the bastard and we can kind of put ourselves onto him in respect of this journey that he takes that is just like and I know what it's like to be a king and to be yeah. royal. And then like consistently having it shown to him that that's not the case and not the case and not the case, which gets us here where it's like, why am I the one that has to give this pep? Like, <laughs> but, but, but clearly he, but clearly I think he, he's frustrated in this moment because he certainly thinks he, I think he believes what he's saying. Certainly in the, and I think he's really like, this isn't supposed to be like this. Like the stories I would have heard about someone like you 
don't end like this. Absolutely. And that his, and that King John's response is you do it, you know, like that's extraordinary. At the end, he leaves him in charge of the entire army and the entire defense of the realm. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's so surprising. It's so shocking. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty fun. (laughs) Well, wonderful. Welcome Rafe. Here we are. We're at act five, scene two. Now we're moving on to the French side and we are going to to see the um, uh, the meeting of the English nobles and and the Dauphin, which um, sometimes people because it's always written in in the first folio as the dolphin. <laughs> so there are some like Shakespeare purists that like always want you to say dolphin, but it's also like to me it's like not one of those things that's worth getting into a yeah that's. I that's really it about it's like there's so many other things <laughs> that we could be spending our time arguing about um no dolphin <laughs> dolphin 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 well it's, it's like dolphin. it's also you know I'm, I'm working on putting the script together for henry v and there it's like such a great question in a play that has all this french actually written into it mm. how do you pronounce all the french names do you anglicize them or do you yeah. pronounce them like because there are French characters who are speaking French as opposed to most of all the other history plays where there are French characters? Um, so I'm, at least he writes them some French. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he's so disrespectful to the Welsh. He's like, yeah, not even gonna write you anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to give you a, a fun accent, um, yeah. a sing-songy accent. I love Welsh accents. I think they're amazing (laughs) and very mellifluous. Um, Anyway, let's do 5-2. So we have Lewis and Salisbury and Pembroke and the Count Maloon, who um, we're going to meet. He doesn't speak yet. He doesn't speak, (laughs) but he gets an awesome depth scene. So, (laughs) all right, here we go. Whenever you're ready. My Lord Maloon, let this be copied out and keep it safe for our remembrance. Return the precedent to these lords again, that having our fair order written down, both they and we, pursuing o'er these notes, may know wherefore we took the sacrament, and keep our fates firm and inviolable. Upon our side it never shall be broken, and noble Dauphin, albeit we swear a voluntary zeal and unurged faith to your proceedings. Yet believe me, Prince, I am not glad that such a sore of time should seek a plaster by condemned revolt and heal the inveterate canker of one wound by making many. Oh, it grieves my soul that I must draw this metal from my side to be a widow maker. Oh, and there where honorable rescue and defense cries out upon the name of Salisbury. But such is the infection of the time that for the health and physic of our right, we cannot deal but with the very hand of stern injustice and confused wrong. And it's not pity, oh my grieved friends, that we, the sons and children of this isle, were born to see so sad an hour as this, wherein we step after a stranger, march upon her gentle bosom, and fill up her enemy's ranks. Oh, I must withdraw and weep upon the spot of this enforced cause to grace the gentry of a land remote and follow unacquainted colors here. What, here? O nation, that thou couldst remove that Neptune's arms who clippeth thee about 
would bear thee from the knowledge of thyself and grapple thee unto a pagan shore where these two Christian armies might combine the blood of malice in a vein of league and not to spend it so unneighborly. A noble temper dost thou show in this, and great affections wrestling in thy bosom doth make an earthquake of nobility. Oh, what a noble combat hast thou fought between compulsion and a brave respect. Let me wipe off this honorable dew that, silver, that silverly doth progress on thy cheeks. My heart hath melted at a lady's tears, being an ordinary inundation. But this effusion of such manly drops, this shower blown up by tempest of the soul, startles mine eyes and makes me more amazed than I had seen the vaulty top of heaven figured quite o'er with bursting meteors. Lift up thy brow, renowned, renowned Salisbury, and with a great heart heave away this storm. Commend these waters to those baby eyes that never saw the giant world enraged nor met with fortune other than at feasts full of warm blood, of mirth, warm of blood, of mirth, of gossiping. Come, come, for thou shalt thrust thy hand as deep into the pulse, into the purse of rich prosperity as Lewis himself. So nobles, show you all that knit your sinews to the strength of mine. And even there, methinks an angel spake, Look where the holy leg uh, legate comes apace to give us warrant from the hand of God and on our actions set the name of right with holy breath. Hail, noble prince of France. The next is this. King John hath reconciled himself to Rome. His spirit has come in. That so stood out against the holy church, the great metropolis and see of Rome. Therefore, thy threatening colors now wind up and tame the savage spirit of wild war that, like a lion fostered up at hand, it may lie gently at the foot of peace and be no further harmful than in show. Your grace shall pardon me. I will not back. I'm too high-born to be propertied to be a secondary at control, or useful serving man and instrument to any sovereign state throughout the world. Your breath first kindled the dead coal of wars between this chastised kingdom and myself and brought in matter that should feed this fire. And now tis far too huge to be blown out with that same weak wind which enkindled it. You taught me how to know the face of right, acquainted me with interest to this land. Yea, thrust this enterprise into my heart. And come ye now to tell me John hath made his peace with Rome? What is that peace with me? I, by the honor of my marriage bed, after young Arthur claimed this land for mine, and now it is half conquered, must I back, because that John hath made his peace with Rome? Am I Rome's knave? What penny hath Rome borne? What men provided? What munitions sent to underprop this action? Is it not I that undergo this charge? Who else but I, and such as to my claim are liable, sweat in this business and maintain this war? Have I not heard these islanders shout out, Vive le Roy, as I have banked their towns? Have I not here the best cards for the game to win this easy match played for a crown? And shall I now give o'er the yielded set? No, no, on my soul, I never, on my soul, it shall never be said. You look but on the outside of this work. 
outside or inside. I will not return till my attempt so much be glorified as my ample hope was promised before I drew this gallant head of war and called these fiery spirits from the world to unlock conquest and to win and to win renown even in the jaws of danger and of death. What lusty trumpet doth this doth summon us? According right. to the fair sorry, let's just pause for no, a second. I had second a feeling there. it was gonna happen. I was like <laughs> We yeah we so we covered sort of two sections there. We had the the alliance costs us some tears mm. section, and then Pandolf comes in, and we have the what is that piece to me section, and then we're about to have what I have titled the outscolding section. So what are the thoughts? I mean, this is this is quite a scene. Um, this is a very different Lewis than we saw in uh, Act Three. Yeah. Um, what, what have you noticed are, are, are some differences or, or, or just any observations about the character, Rafe? I mean, just really came into his own. I mean, it's this Henry V moment, sort of, except for <laughs> he might be making a big mistake. But, um, but he, yeah, but he, he just really owns his place and owns his power in this moment and, uh, and, and takes charge of the situation. I mean, turning away from the church's command is kind of a big deal. Yeah, and uh, and he has he doesn't hesitate to do it, but I think I think he was emboldened by just by what he's seen, and I think mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not sure exactly by what, but um, but I think it's also a beautiful moment in the beginning when he uh, really hears Salisbury's uh, conflict and really just takes it in. So there's something noble about what he's doing. I think I don't yeah. know. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, an interesting scene with all these these very big speeches. And it reminds me of Act Two, when we had King John and the King of France with these competing speeches, sort of. But this is is much more personal, the speeches in this in this scene. They're much more about sort of what my personal feelings are. Mm. Um, and I, what were what were your thoughts, Meg, about the the Salisbury speech at the beginning of of five two? You know, I think that it's it's a terrible struggle for him that he mm. has to turn away from his King John, um, and we know all the relations. I mean, how close he is to him in a, in many ways, and how he's been a major supporter of him of King John. And so for him, it's a, it's a real collapse that he has to give up his nationhood, so to speak, and turn to Lewis, you know, but he's, a, he's the diplomat here, right? He's yeah. the diplomat, you know, and this is, uh, he says his, his piece, but, you know, he's, he's just trying to like make it work. Yeah, he's trying to make it work here. Let's not spend, not to spend it so unneighborly. Let's, you know, we're going to work this out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something that really, really struck me about this speech is, um, is an acknowledgement of the complexity of the situation, which I feel like in a lot of previous scenes, the characters have not sort of been like, there are two sides to this, <laughs> you know, it's been very okay. sort of singular and very much like there's only one way. Um, and I think there is something about this, about this inner conflict which we we saw a bit i think with the with the bastard at the end of act four and of course with hubert in act four of like i don't think there are maybe maybe there are more perspectives than um and 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 i love this bit about such as the infection of the time 
that for the health and physic of our right, we cannot deal, but with the very hand of stern injustice and confused wrong. It's like, there's no way for anyone to win here right now, um, which is an interesting perspective on the situation, which I think is a very accurate one that really none of these people are gonna, there's no winning. (laughs) They're not gonna get sick of winning because nobody's really winning. They're they're Mm -hmm. all just kind of, there's a lot of destruction that's about to happen. Yeah. I think it's interesting also how Lewis does take, I mean, I guess he's, he takes Arthur's death really personally, like mm-hmm. as, like yeah. he actually was really close to him. I mean, that must be part of the reason why he's doing this, right? Well, I think so. And then there was that, I mean, there's that wonderful interaction between Pandolf and Lewis um, at the end of act three, where, you know, I call it like, welcome to the big kids table. It's, it's very much a like, you've got to look at long term, and you've got to look at the political potency of your actions. And um, this to me, is almost like the student has become the master a little bit this this speech about I will not back. Because right. Pandolf was the one who was pushing so strongly the the um, idea that you need to take advantage of the time, which is exactly what you've done. You've Mm -hmm. taken advantage of the time. And now because it's inconvenient, now you have to like, you got all these people riled up. You brought them across the channel. Like the citizens are welcoming you as a conquering invader. And you're being told, no, 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 you should go back now. Cause like the reason you had was not a good reason or, or is now, resolved so there's an interesting right. I, I i mean yeah yeah i think he seems to be like the one leader in this whole thing that stands stands by what he believes in this moment he this is a play about people flip-flopping back and forth whether it's the citizens to the the leaders themselves and he doesn't change his mind here yeah but that's the student becoming the teacher that definitely yeah that that rings true too um it's very much oh, a theme in a lot of in a lot of uh, Shakespeare's work too. I mean, Henry Henry the Fourth, Prince Hal. Yeah, to, absolutely. To Henry the Fifth. And well, and 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 learning that ruling, as you sort of, as as Salisbury said, you know, so thrive it in your game, and so farewell to King right. John in Act Four. You you end this speech by saying, like, I've got a really good hand right now. And I could win the game. And are you telling right. me now with all these advantages that I have that I should just turn around and go home and lose the game when I have all the ingredients to win the game? And I think to me that that really plays into this, the theme. One of the many themes of this play is that power is a game. And um, in a certain very cynical sense, allegiance is a game as well, that it, it really is about the convenience of of what do you have to gain by each of these allegiances? Not so much about the personal qualities of the, of the people you are aligning yourself with, but like, what can they get for you? It's commodity as, as, as Philip Richard Bastard told us before, you know, self-interest is what is ruling this, the world of this play, I think. Yeah. And is like so useless. <laughs> <laughs> like he's like set a building on fire and then returned with a glass of water to throw at it he's just yeah. like don't do anything more I love and then that. just gives up he's like nothing i can do yeah 
worst, I, most evil character in the whole thing, I think. Just vile. But hey, I mean, like like everyone else, he has his own stuff yeah. he's trying to get done. Like, he is yeah. no different than almost everyone here. Yeah. He's oh, also, right. yeah, he's also trying to do his thing. I, I he succeeds. And he succeeds. Um, I do have a question because I, I think I may be reading this wrong. So Salisbury is like, oh man, I'm really sad that we've gotten to this point. And mm-hmm. Lewis is like, I understand, me too. I could almost cry at this, but don't worry. I'm going to, you know, do it, you know, like I, I feel for you. And then yeah. Pandolf is like, Lewis, don't worry about anything. We don't have to fight about this. John has essentially capitulated. But then Lewis is like, no, I no, I will continue to meet everyone with a show of a lot of force. Mm. Am I, I'm I, like, that's what I thought I read, but I don't know if that's actually correct. Well, I think I'm, I wanted to clarify. He's, Lewis is tired of being, well, I think, it, I, well, yeah, Ariane, I think you made the good point where it's like this, he sees, he sees his window of opportunity at this moment. And why, why when the Pandolf told me to, told, was, was fighting for me to get angry before, why is it more, politically favorable for him just to ask for peace now. It doesn't make sense in this well, moment. And, and Pandolf had a, a previously said like, you need to fight on behalf of the Pope because he is um, being very saucy against the Sea of Rome, right? So you need to, as a good Christian prince, fight on behalf of Rome but now that Rome's made peace with John, there's no reason for you to fight anymore. But right. I think what Lewis is also saying is actually there was a second reason, which was that you told me that I should pursue the claim, Arthur's claim over all of England, which would also give him control over all of France, which is probably what the French right. want the most. Is right. Actually, that makes sense. Um, doing that. But so we have this, this fascinating defiance another defiance to to pandolf in rome and then our wonderful out scolder um the bastard is coming in and remember that he's just been given the ordering of the entire defense of the realm so he has been given the authority to essentially walk into the situation and decide what to do which is kind of extraordinary um, hey, can i can i just ask one other question oh yeah please um vive Leroy. is that how you, am i, I pronouncing that in that I, oh, <laughs> I actually don't even know. I, I don't know what Spanish. that means. It means either. like long live the king. Yeah, right. Or, um, um, like, <laughs> correct though. No, are you saying that is correct? I do oh, speak okay. some French, so. Okay. okay. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, which okay. is extraordinary, right? For for English citizens to watch a, con- a French conqueror and like the English hate the French for years. They had a, well, this is, this historical moment is prior to the hundred years where they fought a war with them for a hundred freaking years. They hate them. So for the English citizens to be saying, long live the French king in French, um, they, they, they must be pretty unhappy with John right now. Um. <laughs> I, I also just have to say this very quickly, and this is like so stupid because it's Shakespeare, but we always consider him to be so enlightened. But when, we, when I'm talking about man tears, like and how moved i am by him i'm just like I, i'm just rolling my eyes and <laughs> i get it i get it but it just that part is just a little bit like dude come up to the 21st century man <laughs> man tears man tears 
I um, the manly drops. I yeah. I really like I quite like that construction of manly drops. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I do wonder what because as we've seen before, Lewis is quite good at the courtly flattering language. What he used to Blanche when he was sort of forcibly wooing her, <laughs> backed up by a lot of political pressure of the like, oh, I see there's this obsession with the eyes and there's so much imagery in here. Like I see myself in her eye and I never loved myself until I saw myself in her eye. And this also seems like us a little bit in that vein of like, wow, I'm really moved that you're moved. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting yeah. sort of courtly behavior, I think that, that, um, that is there. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of language in here about men weeping. Um, yeah. And especially yeah. we'll see in the last scene as well. Um, He's making a beautiful effort to connect with Salisbury in that. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so in comes our bargaining power. According to the fair play of the world, let me have audience. I am sent to speak my holy lord of Milan from the king. I come to learn how you have dealt for him. And as you answer, I do know the scope and warrant limited unto my tongue. The Dauphin is too willful opposite and will not temporize with my entreaties. He flatly says he'll not lay down his arms. By all the blood that ever fury breathed, the youth says well. Now hear our English king, for thus his royalty doth speak in me. He is prepared, and reason to he should. This apish and unmannerly approach, this harnessed mask and unadvised revel, this unhaired sauciness and boyish troops the king doth smile at, and is well prepared to whip this dwarfish war, these pygmy arms from out the circle of his territories. The hand which had the strength, even at your door, to cudgel you and make you take the hatch, to dive like buckets in concealed wells, to crouch in litter of your stable planks, to lie like pawns locked up in chests and trunks, to hug with swine, to seek sweet safety out in vaults and prisons, and to thrill and shake, even at the crying of your nation's crow, thinking this voice an armed Englishman. Shall that victorious hand be feebled here, that in your chambers gave you chastisement? No, no, the gallant monarch is in arms, and like an eagle o'er his airy towers to sow's annoyance that comes near his nest. And you degenerate, you ingrate revolts, you bloody Nero's ripping up the womb of your dear mother England blush for shame. For your own ladies and pale visaged maids, like Amazons come tripping after drums, their thimbles into armored gauntlets change, their needles to lances and their gentle hearts to fierce and bloody inclination. There end thy brave and turn thy face in peace. We grant thou canst outscold us. Fare thee well. We hold our time too precious to be spent with such a brabbler. Give me leave to speak. No, I will speak. We will attend to neither. Strike up the drums and let the tongue of war plead for our interest and our being here. Indeed, your drums being beaten will cry out and so shall you being beaten. Do but start and echo with the clamor of thy drum and even at the... Even at hand, a drum is ready braced that shall reverberate all as loud as thine. Sound but another, and another shall, as loud as thine, rattle the welkin's ear and mock the deep mouth thunder. For at hand, not trusting to this halting legate here, 
whom he hath used rather for sport than need, is warlike John, and in his forehead sits a bare-ribbed death, whose office is this day to feast upon whole thousands of the French. Strike up our drums to find this danger out. And thou shalt find it, Dauphin, do not doubt. Damn! <laughs> That's like the wow. most insane bluff. <laughs> Like, that's crazy that he does that. <laughs> yeah, all in. He's, that, yeah, yeah. That's the craziest bluff ever. <laughs> yeah. I I love the, this very strange, intricate image you have of the French, like, hiding on floorboards and, like, hiding with their cattle and pigs and things. <laughs> Because they, they yeah. heard the cock and thought it was a armed Englishman to come and get them. And it's like very like yeah. roundabout way of saying y'all are scaredy cats. But it's like very descriptive way of saying it. Um, Absolutely. Also, <laughs> I feel like there's one of these, you know, sometimes when you are reading XYZ Shakespeare play and you feel like you get, you get the sense of an internal sort of like, Shakespeare himself in joke in respect of like his fellow actors and who he was writing for why is he so into talking about how small Lewis and the French are yeah pygmy arms and dwarfish war and like all which is you know incredibly rude but like what is that about <laughs> but like I mean, can, feels... that just have, can that just have been the British like just talk shit about the French all the time <laughs> Maybe. I guess I'm trying to find some internal logic for this, as we've said, this massive, this massive amount of pictures he's painting all at once, you know, which are yeah. so, which are so much. And it does also feel to a degree like, because this isn't really true, like this isn't exactly true. This isn't totally true. <laughs> so given that, it's as if he just starts it and he's just going to also convince himself yeah that makes a lot of sense to me yeah that that is the, the engine of this speech is like this need to pull yourself up now that you've been given this power and and put the other people down as much yeah. as possible yeah yeah um, it's really your it's the strength too of the bastard is to put people down like this it's like so. one of the massive strengths. I love after that huge speech that Lewis is like, yeah, I'm not going to try and top that. I, 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 yeah, I love <laughs> that. Win. It's like, <laughs> fine, great, you can like, talk I'm better gonna... than I can. <laughs> Strike the drums. We're killing these assholes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Lewis is smart, but also like, I feel like I do admit like in this moment, the bastard can clearly see the power that Lewis has. Mm. And like, it looks bad. Like it looks, it looks really bad. <laughs> so like it would be stupid to assume that in this moment the bastard doesn't look at lewis and fully understand that he has the upper hand here so this is truly like the hail mary pass mm. of the of the play i guess yeah i love that it's like lewis has spent this whole play to like listening to arguments and at a certain point he's like we're not talking about this anymore no more words <laughs> like no more words which is interesting because this has mainly been fought with words we've never seen violence happen on stage 
in this play so far. There has there's been people threatening each other, but never have we seen actual violence on on stage. It's all been sort of the violence of of rhetoric. So it's interesting to me that Lewis is like, uh uh-uh, uh uh uh, we need to just beat some people now. Yeah. <laughs> like enough words. It's quite a quite a scene. Quite a these characters are very different from they were from who they were at the be- beginning of the play. I think. Yeah, I think um, the bastard and Lewis both have teacher student graduations in this play. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the bastard less so because you sort of had it all figured out from the beginning a little bit, but <laughs> but I mean, maybe not. But yeah, but it's just we both kind of grow up in this play together sort of I would agree and I I totally agree 100% though like I don't think I think the bastard certainly thought he had it figured out but like Mm. as we've seen like the scales very much fall from his eyes about the way the way this works so I'm absolutely Mm. with you on that well and it's interesting that they're both so I guess this would be uh the bastards so King John is the bastard's uncle and um and then of course uh lewis is king philip's son so it's like we've moved away from that first generation they're not even in these negotiating rooms anymore yeah and it's like this this new generation has taken over the um the sort of politics and the and the war effort um of their countries which is very you know definitely the torch has been passed um Wonderful. So let us move on to five, three. There's a whole bunch of like very short scenes in this. This was, I think the longest scene in this act. And now we're moving to a series of very short um, scenes. It's very Shakespearean. When we get to a battle scene, we all of a sudden get little vignettes all over the place. People enter and exit very quickly. So yeah, Julia, if you wouldn't mind reading Hubert, that'd be lovely. How goes the day with us? Oh, tell me Hubert. Badly, I fear. How fares your magic? This fever that hath troubled me so long lies heavy on me. Oh, my heart is sick. My lord, your valiant kinsman, Falconbridge, desires your majesty to leave the field and send him word by me which way you go. Tell him towards Swinstead, to the abbey there. Be of good comfort, for the great supply that was expected by the Dauphin here are wrecked three nights ago on Goodwin Sands. This news was brought to Richard, but even now... The French fight coldly and retire themselves. I mean, this tyrant fever burns me up I w- and will not let me welcome this good news. Set on towards Swinstead to my litter straight. Weakness possesseth me and I am faint. So we have our third ship- shipwreck of the play. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> this is, there's a lot of shipwrecks. Like they need a better Navy, I think is the conclusion that I have for the, like both the French and the English just like need a better Navy and like need to learn how to work the ocean a little bit better. Um, yeah, or Shakespeare needs a different MacGuffin. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was about to say, there are <laughs> exactly. like way, way too many shipwrecks. <laughs> so that is, many. Like, how should this play start? Highly <laughs> small group of plays he's written and there's at least nine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's very romantic too, I think. There's something very romantic. Having now spent quite a few months next to the ocean, it's kind of, it's very romantic. And it's also very, um, there is no way that human beings will ever conquer the power of the ocean. Like there's just no way we will ever 
even come close. Um, and so to me, there is something like in the storms and the, and the ocean that is like, there is a power that's greater than us. And it's like water, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely, and we saw all the, the meteors and exhalations, but it's like, nobody wants this war to happen. So the seas wrecked the supply ships, and this is not going to be a long drawn out war. It's going to happen very, very quickly. Um, and John still is a fever. It seems like he's had a fever since act two, which is a little bit weird because we're going to find out soon that he was then poisoned when he went to the Abbey. So he was already sick and then he was poisoned. I don't know. This is a little bit strange timeline here. So uh, there was that tidy little scene. Now we go into five, four and we have, um, our, the English, the revolts of England and, uh, this wonderful, French character who had an English grandfather who loves Hubert named Meloon. <laughs> and this is all we meet of Meloon, but he, uh, he has a, a wonderful couple of speeches. <laughs> Let's go right into it. I did not think the king so stored with friends. Up, once again, put spirit in the French. If they miscarry, we miscarry too. That misbegotten devil, Falconbridge, in spite of spite, alone upholds the day. They say King John, sore sick, hath left the field. Lead me to the revolts of England here. When we were happy, we had other names. It is the Count Milan. Wounded to death. Fly, noble English. You were bought and sold to unthread the rude eye of rebellion and welcome home again discarded faith. Seek out King John and fall before his feet, for if the French be lords of this loud day, he needs to recompense the pains you take by cutting off your heads. Thus hath he sworn, and I with him, and many more with me, upon the altar of St. Edmundsbury, even on that altar where we swore to you, dear enmity and everlasting love. May this be possible? May this be true? Have I not hideous death within my view, retaining but a quality of life which bleeds away even as a form of wax resolveth from his figure against the fire? What in the world should make me now deceive since I must lose the use of all deceit? Why should I then be false since it is true that I must die here and live hence by truth? I say again, if Lewis do win this day, do win the day. He is forsworn if e'er those eyes of yours behold another daybreak in the east. But even this night, whose dark contagious breath already smokes about the burning crest of the old feeble and day-wearied sun, even this ill night your breathing shall expire, paying the fine of rated treachery, even with a treacherous fine of all your lives if Lewis by your assistance win the day. Commend me to one Hubert with your king, the love of him and this respect besides, for that my grandsire was an Englishman, awakes my conscience to confess all this. In lieu whereof, I pray you bear me hence mm. forth the noise and rumor of the field where I may think the remnant of my thoughts in peace and part this body and my soul with, the, with contemplation and devout desires. We do believe thee, and bestrew my soul, but I do love the favor and the form of this most fair occasion, by the which we will untread the steps of damned flight, 
and like abated and retired flood, leaving our ranks in irregular course, stoop low within those bounds we have o'erlooked and calmly run on in obedience, even to our ocean, to our great King John. My arm shall give thee help to bear thee hence, for I do see the cruel pangs of death right in thine eye. Away, my friends, new flight and happy newness that intends old right. So we have a, a lot of allegiance switches here. We had the English lords uh, aligned with France and now <laughs> realigning with England due to a Frenchman who was aligned with the French who now in his dying words would like to uh, ally himself with the English. So um, thoughts. <laughs> there's so much betrayal it's it's so and betrayal is a huge fact throughout this entire play and you know it's sort of i mean there's just betrayals on a lot of levels that king john would kill his own nephew to secure his throne like that's a betrayal within the family bloodline and you know it just um and then the nobles you know feel betrayed by John because of that and no doubt other things too of course and and tell us about Maloon Bronwyn who is who's this guy and and what are what are your what are your thoughts about this this wounded Frenchman that just sweeps onto the stage (laughs) he reminds me of bloody soldier from Macbeth yeah yeah just this kind of like random character that comes in uh, who's n- not going to survive barely past the end of his own speech, but um, that changes the tides once again for everyone else. Um, mm. And I think it, it it's, again, it's, it's, I think it's a move for the audience. There are a lot of moves in, in this in a kind of performative way to make the audience think, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not over. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they're really going to come back from this this time. And this one, especially when I've seen the show, does it for me. It makes me, it gives me that last bit of hope that maybe John will survive it. And um, because now he's going to have these lords behind him again. He's been alone. He's been burning up and fever and can't, he's made this terrible decision. He's weighed down with the weight of it. But this is that moment where those, the tide changes once again. And maybe, yeah. maybe it's in his favor, but uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's it's great. It's it's a, a lovely uh, reverse of a red herring of making you think everything might be okay. I love that, and you know, I think it's probably safe to say that most people don't know this play. And if you're going to see this play, I don't think most people going to see the play would know exactly how it's going to turn out, which kind of makes it kind of awesome if if you wanted to stage this play because you could really keep the audience you could really play each moment very authentically for it just happening now um, without, you know, the audience going, oh yeah, I know it's about to happen. Like, I I feel like if you're doing a play like Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, it's sort of like, yeah, there might be some people in the audience who don't know the story, but like most, it's the the play has such cultural weight that it's like, they're going to know something about it so there is there is kind of a cool opportunity if you were staging this play to sort of really keep the audience on on their toes and like it isn't clear who who wins at this point or who's going to win 
Yeah, the um, the RSC did a really cool thing where they cast the same actor as, um, well, they they called him <laughs> Shitty on. Um, <laughs> they made fun of him when they came on. He's like, oh, hey, Shitty on. Um, <laughs> but they had they changed his name from Milan to Shitty. Oh, it was um, the same guy. So it was the same guy who messengered in that first bit of news, and then mm-hmm. at the end dies. I thought that was a really creative way to do that. I didn't know that this other character even existed. Yeah, that's um, so really that's really smart. Combine those two, and he had a full arc, which was neat. I thought that, and so I'm I'm only learning really now from reading it that they're two different characters, but they pulled one of those Julius Caesar, Frankenstein, some characters. Yeah, together. I thought it worked well, nicely to kind of round out that idea of this messenger. Which is fun because this also makes um, King John. I mean, I, I'm I'm printing out some of the the cast lists that uh, we have on the that uh, Robin has on the I Read Shakespeare website, and like the one for King Henry the Fourth Part Two, it's like tiny, like it's a tiny font because there are so many freaking characters, and some of them have to like if they only appear once, there's like three characters in one row. Um, because she just doesn't have enough space on the page. But this is like a pretty nice font size. And like, you can definitely like see all the characters there. But I actually, I always kind of love it when you can, you can squeeze it into an even tighter cast and an even tighter group of people doing, doing the show. And I think you could very easily do that with like, you know, a character like Essex, uh, who shows up at the beginning could very easily just be put into uh, Pembroke or Salisbury and uh, Maloon could become Chatillon and then it's like you it just it makes it more personal and it also gives each of the actors like kind of a, a little bit more deliciousness to 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 chew on and sometimes you know it, there can be character inconsistencies but I think as as you know one of my favorite John Barton things is like find the inconsistencies in the character and play them to the hilt uh, which I think is such wonderful, wonderful advice about any character that you're playing, because we are contradictory. So I think it, it, at a certain point, it, 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 it's, it's quite fun to, um, to, to play with that. There's a lot of sun and moon and sunset and night, a lot of interesting imagery, um, which is going to be continued now by Lewis in the next scene. He has not yet received word that his supply chain has essentially been destroyed and wrecked on Goodwin Sands. So let's get that lovely little scene. And, and Meg will also be reading the, the messenger in this scene, but it is a different messenger, not the same messenger. Or um, is it? Or is it? Contradictory. <laughs> Interesting. Double booked messenger. <laughs> like I'm working for England and France. It's, it's all good. <laughs> Anywho, here we go. The sun of heaven, methought, was loath to set, but stayed and made the western welkin blush when English measured backward their ground, their own ground in faint retire. Oh, bravely we came off when with, the fo- when, when with a volley of our needless shot, after such bloody toil, we bid good night and wound our tottering colors clearly up, last in the field and almost lords of it. Where is my prince, the Dauphin? Here. What news? The Count Malone is slain. The English lords, by his persuasion, are again fallen off. And your supply, 
which you have wished so long are cast away and sunk on Goodwin Sands. Oh, foul, shrewd news. Beshrew thy very heart. I did not think to be so sad tonight as this hath made me. Who is he that said King John did fly an hour or two before the stumbling night did part our weary powers? Whoever spoke it, it is true, my lord. Well, keep good quarter and good care tonight. The day shall not be up so soon as I to try the fair adventure of tomorrow. And that's the last time we see Lewis in this play, mm. which is an interesting character conclusion. <laughs> I don't know if it's a conclusion. Everyone get to sleep. <laughs> tomorrow. Sleepy time. <laughs> we ride. <laughs> it's it's a very uh it should really, be a, I should, you should really sing a lullaby at the end i think <laughs> gentlemen just tuck in the messenger yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow i i love the um how confused everyone is like nobody has the correct information and there seems to be this jumble of misinformation <laughs> which i think is is done most perfectly in Henry the fourth part two at the beginning where the the chorus the prologue of the whole speech is given by a figure that's called rumor which is amazing and talks about how malicious rumor is and dangerous but what I kind of love is that Lewis says something here like who was it he said King John did fly an hour or two before the stumbling night did part of weary powers we never witnessed Lewis hearing that news but we just saw the english lords hearing that news so it's it's interesting it's almost like shakespeare plays with our memory a little bit and like when certain characters learn things it's like all of a sudden the other characters get that information as well it's kind right. of a fun like little <laughs> little turn yeah who was it who said that it was oh yeah. <laughs> did i just make that up no did I, did I see it? Was I watching the stage when that happened? <laughs> a little meta theatrical <laughs> moment there. Am I supposed to know this? Oh. <laughs> um, um, no. Any final thoughts on, on Lewis, Rave? Um, I don't think so. I, I, there was, oh, it, uh, what is Western Welkin blush? Is that just- oh. a welkin here means the sky or the firmament. So like the, as the sun was setting, the Western sky looked, was mm. blushing. Like a cool. sunset, like a bloody sunset. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's. But in this scene, he starts off ba pretty happy about how things have been going, right? Yeah, yeah. And then at the end, it's just like, "Fuck, it's not that easy." Yeah, which Great. is also interesting because in uh, two scenes ago <laughs> with King John and Hubert and the English messenger. We got the note that the French, oh, the English are doing well, and the French are not fighting well, and they're 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 not they're fighting indifferently and unenthusiastically, and here you're attaining you're you're sort of putting the meaning on that that we were the last people on the field that right. oh we're closer to victory, but for the but English almost, their interpretation is that you weren't closer to victory. Right. That, like, but I also say almost the lords of it. I think I'm kind yeah. of trying to paint this as a pretty picture. Yeah, yeah. Too. But I, you know, this whole scene and just how I leave just leads to the whole tone of this overall play, which is that war is hell and yeah. kind of confusing. Yeah. 
and doesn't yeah. end clearly for anyone. War is hell, kind of confusing, doesn't end well for anyone. I think that's a very good um, thesis of this play. As Shakespeare yeah, very said. nice. Uh, Shakespeare doesn't seem to be too keen on warfare. There, there, there seems to be too much really gruesome, violent, traumatic imagery to say that these are all these history plays are very pro-war. I think that's just my interpretation. But indeed, there's too many awesome women telling people to stop fighting <laughs> with the best language in the play I think for me for these plays to be interpreted entirely as like being very pro pro-war and pro-imperialist but you know as has been said many times I think everyone just tries to push their own political beliefs when interpreting these plays and um mm -hmm push them off. Like, I think my favorite example of this is Coriolanus, which has been used by both fascist leaders and also populist leaders <laughs> to justify their, their way. You know, it's like, there's, there's two interpretations. Like is Coriolanus the hero or is he the villain of the piece? And depending on what your political views are, you can very easily kind of uh, push those onto any interpretation that you choose to, um, to do. <laughs> Um, it happens you know, with the best works of literature. Sorry. Oh yeah, totally, absolutely. I just wanted to add that you know that so that ambiguity which Shakespeare sets up all the time, so that we have to make some kind of decision about where we stand in relationship to these characters. Mm -hmm. um, well, like, well, what's true? Is it true? What is it? A rumor? Did did King John actually kill then, or did Hubert kill Arthur, or no? Did Arthur jump? Yeah. Like so, yeah. where's the where's the the fault there? Who who's responsible for that? You know, and and it's just interesting that as you've mentioned that these characters can be seen from two different opposing political sides mm -hmm. or philosophical sides. Absolutely, so I think I think that's amazing that everybody can cheer for their own person and they may be the same person, even though they're on opposite sides. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there, there is a, Shakespeare doesn't tend to write characters as black and white. I mean, I think that's, if anything, that is the most significant innovation that he gave to drama is that he wasn't writing all black, all white, you know, he didn't have virtue and vice personified on stage. He wrote very much in the gray area. And so in that way, it's, it's wonderful for, for us, you know, who get to interpret these works because we get to play the gamut of <laughs> and play all those inconsistencies of, of, you know, Salisbury, I think, for example, could very easily be played as both an incredibly um, conflicted person and also a incredibly self-interested person. I think you can hold both of those realities within the same person and play it. And it actually becomes a more interesting character if, if those two things are held together, you know? So I think, I think there's, there's a lot of that interpretation um, that we can play with at the, the end of this play. Yeah, exactly. And Salisbury could be, you know, <clears throat> he's, he's the one that, that calls out this is this is foul play this is murder yeah. Yeah. and yet as soon as things start turning south it's like okay i'm going over to the french yeah. that's it 
you know, I'm going to take care of that. Then I was like, oh, you're, you're going to be beheaded if, you know, Lewis wins. So I was like, okay, I'm back to, I'm back know, to the English. I'm back with John. So <laughs> I'm back to the English. So you could see it as terrible tumult, personal, you know, mm -hmm. stuff, or you could see it as self-serving and calculating. Yeah, absolutely. So, or both. And, and maybe <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> Well, on we move on to um, Hubert and the bastard who meet each other. And obviously this is, this is at nighttime. So <laughs> at nighttime, nobody knows what, this is my favorite Shakespearean trope is like, if you put a hood on, like nobody knows who you are. Um, it's, it's really convenient <laughs> for costuming. It's, it's the best. <laughs> so we have this yeah. wonderful scene between uh, two people on the English side who don't know who the other one is. And we're going to hear about our fourth shipwreck of the play <laughs> in this scene. Who's there? Speak ho, speak quickly or I shoot. A friend, what art thou? Of the part of England. Whither dost thou go? What's that to thee? Why may not I demand of thine affairs as well as thou of mine? Hubert, I think. Thou hast a perfect thought. I will upon all hazards well believe thou art my friend that knows my tongue so well. Who art thou? Who thou wilt, and if thou please, thou mayest befriend me so much as to think I come one way of the Plantagenets. Unkind remembrance. Thou and endless night have done me shame. Brave soldier, pardon me, that any accent breaking from thy tongue should scape the true acquaintance of mine ear. Come, come, sense compliment. What news abroad? Why, here walk I in the dark brow of night to find you out. Brief, then, and what's the news? Oh, my sweet sir, news fitting to the night. Dark, fearful, comfortless, and horrible. Show me the very wound of this ill news. I am no woman, I'll not swoon at it. The king, I fear, is poisoned by a monk. I left him almost speechless and broke out to acquaint you with this evil that you might the better arm you to the sudden time than if you had a, at leisure known of this. How did he take it? Who did taste to him? A monk, I tell you, a resolved villain whose bowels suddenly burst out. The king yet speaks and peradventure may recover. Who didst thou leave to tend his majesty? Why know you not? The lords are all come back and brought Prince Henry in their company, at whose request the king hath pardoned them, and they are all about his majesty. Withhold thine indignation, mighty heaven, and tempt us not to bear above our power. I'll tell thee, Hubert, half my power this night. Passing these flats are taken by the tide. These Lincoln washes have devoured them. Myself, well-mounted, hardly have escaped. Away before, conduct me to the king. I doubt he will be dead or ere I come. Lovely. Wow. Fourth shipwreck and poisoned by a monk. I mean, seriously, whoa. yeah. <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> like, whoa. It's so wild at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if this is a callback to the first scene, like the second page of the play, when John says to his mother. Uh, oh, our abbeys and our priories shall pay this expedition's charge. And this is like the way, this is his payback is like one of the abbeys. He goes to one of the abbeys and a monk poisons him for what he did, like ransacking the church, which is exactly what Henry VIII did hundreds of years later. Um, right. It's a really great way to raise money. But yeah, I mean, we have, okay. So first of all, I have so many questions. It's like, where was the, so the bastard was, 
it was out by by Lincoln Washes and it's on the east coast of the UK. It's like the shallow inlet of the North Sea. But so he was there, but he was also just at the battle. So he's just been like all over the shop this whole night. Yeah. And it's just it's confusing. <laughs> Absolutely. And so much has happened between the scenes. It's like Maloon was was slain and shipwrecks happen and a monk poisoned the king. And it's just like, this is a crazy world we're stuck in. <laughs> I guess it's just my feeling about this this final bit. Absolutely. I mean, I I agree. I feel the same way. I feel like all that we can really say about this about this scene is just like, yeah, Pubert and the bastard themselves are you know, literally and metaphorically, who is who, whose allegiances are where, we have no idea what's going on. Like, it just feels very aptly like, what is happening? (laughs) And we have to take what little information we can as we kind of run to the next. Absolutely. It's it's so weird. Yeah, like you said, it feels like it's so expository and like, it, it, you know, it does have that kind of like, who's this, who's that, who's that, you know, like, like the, you know, the beginning of Hamlet or something. It, 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 it doesn't feel quite like the end of a play. <laughs> You're like, why are we spending all this time with these guys trying to figure out who each other are? And, and it's the thing that I've, that we keep saying, which is that the language here, this part becomes so complicated because the language here feels like a, a, a tragedy or a history, but the things they're saying are so ridiculous. <laughs> Like, I don't know how you would really play this, you know? Like, how can you say, like, the king I fear is poisoned by a monk, like, in a genuine way? <laughs> like, what is this supposed to be? It's a really, it just feels like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's so confusing and to at me. What po- and at what point does the bastard just be like, ah, I give up, I give <laughs> no, up. truly. I, this, is, this is too much for me. I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> the the bowels burst out line is is quite quite extraordinary. It's like oh my god, absolutely! Wow, <laughs> that's really visceral. Um, it's also just like we just so he's sort of like the king is poisoned by this monk, and then he's like, what? What? Somebody how? poisoned him, and he's like, yeah. yeah, it was a monk. He's dead now, though. His he exploded. Like what? <laughs> what are you saying? Like <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so- um so apparently like the monk was his taster and th- this is very like season two of the Borgias if anyone's seen this oh, or like no. there's like the young kid who like becomes Jeremy Irons' taster for lack of a <laughs> and then like at the end of the season like tastes it but he poisons it before and then he's like trying to hold off the effects of his poison before before the Pope you know, drinks it. And so they both drink it and then he dies and Jeremy Irons is fine. (laughs) After inhaling charcoal, it's like, but it's crazy, right? It's like, it just, it's kind of like a bit over the top. Yes, absolutely. And and as we'll see with, with King John's language in the next scene, he just goes to a totally different place than we've, than we've seen him for the entire play. The only way I can describe it is like, it's like surrealist artscape. Like he just, his imagery becomes so weird and strange and tortured. And we sort of end the play with this very strange, tortured conclusion of this 
tortured character. But yeah, it's, it's pretty weird stuff. <laughs> it's a comedy. It's a comedy. <laughs> well, and then the, the other hilarious, very funny part of this next scene is all of a sudden, wait, King John has a son? who has literally never ever been mentioned and is totally the heir to the crown. Like what a convenient little bow that appears at the end here to tie everything up. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like as per, as per what we've discussed and uh, as we keep saying, like, of course it depends on the interpretation of the production, but like, it really feels like Shakespeare knew what he was doing at this point. Like it, it feels like a weird little micro like fable version of so many other history plays that he has created in his time or indeed you know or indeed like that were popular when he was working it feels like a weird fable version of them and also like a weird satirical version of all of them Mm. he gets all these little points that we would normally have in so many of these but takes them to such ridiculous extremes that it's like this had to have been an intentional comment this is clearly my opinion obviously yeah but like that's how it feels yeah to, to me anyway i mean the other interpretation would be that he's i mean he writes great plots but sometimes maybe he doesn't really write good plots he's just really great at writing characters yeah <laughs> which is i mean i i'm not sure shakespeare's the best and i can't say anything bad about him but my f- my theory no, is we that gotta was... knock the pedestal off. <laughs> yeah. No more pedestal. He sucks. You're right. He sucks. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. My theory is that he was poisoned by a monk, like halfway through writing this. <laughs> That's but, why he has a fever Absolutely. since like act two. Yeah. Yeah. And then he like starts to think that he is King John, so he like writes it in. <laughs> I was something. Oh my that, god. That Just is saying. awesome. Yeah, I love this this Prince Henry character that just shows up at the end and gets some of the sweetest uh, lines in the whole play. Um, this little bit about the signet and the swan. Um, for those of you who are fans of slings and arrows, it's what Jeffrey says as he's pouring um, Oliver's ashes into the Ganges North, as they call it. <laughs> oh, wow. That's the, cool. Um, and it's very sweet. Um, anyway, let's see. Um, Rafe, would you mind reading Prince Henry for us? Because uh, Sam unfortunately couldn't be here tonight. Sure. Awesome. So here we are. This is the final scene of the play. It is too late. The life of all his blood is touched corruptibly. And his pure brain, which some suppose the soul's frail dwelling house, doth by the idle comments that it makes foretell the ending of mortality. His highness yet doth speak and holds belief that being brought into the open air it would allay the burning quality of that fell poison which assaileth him. Let him be brought into the orchard here. Doth he still rage? He is more patient than when you left him. Even now he sung. Oh, vanity of sickness. Fierce extremes and their continuance will not feel themselves. Death, having preyed upon the outward parts, leaves them invisible. And his siege is now against the mind, the which he pricks and wounds with so many legions of strange fantasies, which in their throng and press to that last hold confound themselves. Tis strange that death should sing. I am the signet to this pale faint swan, who chants a doleful hymn to his own death. 
and from the organ pipe of frailty sings his soul and body to their lasting rest. Be of good comfort, Prince, for you are born to set a form upon that ingest which he hath left so shapeless and so rude. Oh, wow. This is a very well-spoken young kid. Yeah. I love nice. that bit about the, the signet and the swan. It's so sweet. He chants a doleful hymn to his own death. And this, this strange death. I, um, I love that the, the, we just had the, the inside-outside um, contrast. The, the Dauphin literally said outside or inside earlier in this act. And now we have this death is preying on the outward parts. And now he's sort of creeping in internally. And he's like killing the imagination and the, the brain and the fantasies are bubbling up really cool yeah. imagery to end with yeah <laughs> he clearly really loves his father yeah and it's like why didn't we see this kid earlier where's he been i have so many questions yeah. like who is this this is now gonna be i think he is let me let me check my my chart here this is going this kid is now going to become henry the third um, who's going to continue the, the Plantagenet line for a very long time. Mm. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty crazy. How, how long was his reign, Ariana? Oh, that's a great question. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> but I know that the uh, it basically went, so King John, then his son, Henry III, then Henry III's son, Edward, Edward the first son, Edward the second, Edward the second son, Edward the third, and then Edward the third son, then Edward the third was the grandfather of a lot of the kings that that Shakespeare deals with. So Edward the third was the grandfather of Richard the second and Henry the fourth, hmm. and so and he's the one who had the 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 seven sons that whose offspring cause an awful lot of trouble and a lot of civil wars. So we're like, let's see, we're sort of five generations at the end of this play from the next um, five or six, sorry, six generations from, uh, from the end of King John to the next time period that Shakespeare tackles um, with the history plays of uh, Richard II, which is quite a jump. Anyway, um, King John comes in and has a whole bunch of really cool language, including the phrase elbow room, which I just really enjoyed. I, um, I played, my band played at the elbow room in the elbow 2005, room. actually. It's not nice. In downtown, in lower Manhattan. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> the elbow room. Mm -hmm. It's like um, my favorite band in, in Henry the Fourth Part Two is, Francis says like, oh, go find Sneak's Noise, like the group of musicians. I'm like, that would be such a good band name, Sneak's Noise. Totally. I love it. Go find Sneak. Go get Sneak. Anyway, um, <laughs> so in comes King John, very hot and bothered and poisoned. I marry, now my soul hath elbow room. It would not out at windows nor at doors. There is so hot a summer in my bosom that all my bowels crumble up to dust. I am a scribbled form drawn with a pen upon a parchment, and against this fire do I shrink up. How fares your majesty? Poisoned. 
ill fare, dead, forsook, cast off. And none of you will bid the winter come and thrust his icy fingers in my maw, nor let my kingdom's river take their course through the, my burned bosom, nor entreat the north to make his bleak winds kiss my parched lips and comfort me with cold. I do not ask you much. I beg cold comfort. And you are so straight and so ingrateful, you deny me that. Oh, that there were some virtue in my tears that might relieve you. The salt in them is hot. Within me is a hell, and there is, and there the poison is as a fiend confined to tyrannize of unreprievable contemned blood. Oh, I am scalded with my violent motion and spleen of speed to see your majesty. Oh, cousin, thou art come to set mine eye. The tackle of my heart is cracked and burnt, and all the shrouds wherewith my life should sail are turned to one thread, one little hair. My heart hath one poor string to stay it by, which holds but till thy news be uttered. And then all this thou seest is but a clod and module of confounded royalty. The Dauphin is preparing hitherward, where God he knows how we shall answer him. For in a night, the best part of my power as I upon advantage did remove, were in the washes all unwarily devoured by the unexpected flood. You breathe these dead news in as dead an ear. My liege, my lord, with now a king, now thus. Even so I must run on, and even so stop. What surety of the world, what hope, what stay. When this was now a king, and now is clay. Art thou gone so? I do but stay behind to do the office for thee of revenge. And then my soul shall wait on thee to heaven, as it on earth hath been thy servant still. Now, now, you stars that move in your right spheres, where be your powers? Show now your mended faiths, and instantly return with me again to push destruction and perpetual shame out of the weak door of our fainting land. Straight let us seek, or straight we shall be sought. The Dauphin rages at our very heels. It seems you know not then so much as we. The Cardinal Pandolf is within at rest, who half an hour since came from the Dauphin, and brings from him such offers of our peace, as we with honor and respect purpose presently to leave this war. He will rather do it when he sees ourselves well sinewed to our defense. Nay, tis in a manner done already, for many carriages he hath dispatched to the seaside and put his cause and quarrel to the disposing of the Cardinal, with whom yourself, Myself and other lords, if you think meet, this afternoon will post to consummate this business happily. Let it be so. And you, my noble prince, with other princes that may best be spared, shall wait upon your father's funeral? At Worcester must his body be interred, for so he willed it. Thither shall it then. And happily may your sweet self and happily may your sweet self put on the lineal state and glory of the land, to whom with all submission on my knee, I do bequeath my faithful services and true subjection everlastingly. And like the tender of our love, we make to rest without a spot forevermore. I have a kind soul that would give thanks and knows not how to do but with tears. 
Oh, let us pay the time but needful woe, since it hath been beforehand with our griefs. This England never did, nor never shall, lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, but when it first did help to wound itself. Now these her princes are come home again. Come these three corners of the world in arms, and we shall shock them, naught shall make us rue, if England to itself do rest but true. Whoa. Okay. Weird. Uh, I think it's really significant that the bastard has the last word. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty typical in um I mean it is it is the Elizabethan convention that the person with the most power at the end of the play is the person who gets the last word. Mm. Um and I think that's very telling. He yeah. gets the last word. Not Salisbury, not Prince Henry but him mm. um it's very interesting any any final thoughts on this this final scene of this final act of this final play <laughs> it's it's a strange one i mean yeah <laughs> I, I guess all i can say at this point is like to jump off of your point if he is the person with power in the room it's it's because he is the one who's most clearly observing and just outside enough to note mm. the damage that everyone here has done to each other, I guess, if you will. Yeah, that it's, makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. I mean, of course, he is um, more behind on news than everyone else, but <laughs> but yeah, it's um, this, yeah. I mean, his whole point is about truth and staying true to yourself, and I think he's the one character who's kind of showed that he will do that <laughs> throughout the whole thing you know he's his he has an arc for sure but his first is about you know like why are we talking let's fight it out has stayed through till the end and so I think that it is important that he's the one that does this and of the three mm. he's also been distant throughout the whole play as well mm. um he's like the character that lasts the end that we recognize from the start. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if there is a, a sort of coded warning to the nobles, to the revolts within that, that last little rhyming couplet. Like the Absolutely. only thing that will destroy us is if we continue this flippy floppy behavior. <laughs> For lack Absolutely, of which is hilarious because it's like the only thing that will destroy us is if we fight amongst ourselves. Anyway, chronologically, <laughs> come watch watch Richard the Second and yeah, Henry, and Henry Five and Henry and Henry Six. So it's like it's very he does it. He ties the bow on this very well and yeah. very um, smartly in respect of all of his other history, all of his history plays. I really like that because I, I also think, I, I know, again, it's like the Elizabethan thing is to, is to make sure that order is reestablished. No matter how chaotic we get during the play, order needs to be reestablished by the end of the play. I think the only exception to that is King Lear um, mm. would, be my, would be my argument that every other play, we kind of get a sense of like, okay, well, that just happened and now we'll move on. But as I get older and more cynical, I think there's, it's much more interesting to sort of punch holes in that order at the end yeah. of the play. 
Um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I mean, there's just logically following the conclusion of certain things that happened within the play. That was one of my favorite things that um, the Shakespeare retold series did with Macbeth, where at the end, you know, Malcolm is, is there, but little Fleance, who is going to be king someday, is looking at Malcolm all murderously. And it's such a horrific, cause you're like, yeah, wait a second. So how does that power transfer? Was that peaceful? Was there another, was Malcolm murdered by Fleance who then, be, does the cycle continue? You know, so I think right. there's ways of, um, and there is a very, I think cyclical nature to these, to these um, history plays as well. Um, that we, we usually start with chaos and we end with chaos. But there's, there's, or it's like, we're going to end the chaos. We're going to try. Um, but there is something to me that's very cynical about even attempting to tie all these things together into a neat bow somehow. I don't know. Yeah. And, and Henry is um, another transition from youth into, into adulthood in, in one scene. Yeah. And it's just a continuation of the of the madness of of switching from king to king and 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 what is he going to find out about how his father died and who was responsible for it and who knows and what it goes on and on take yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks all for listening all right